Welcome to the Otherwise Podcast. I'm your host, Casey Tigert. I'm an author, a pastor, and spiritual director. I remember sitting in a retreat center in Mundelein, Illinois. We were there for a three-day silent retreat, and I was reading a book by Henry Nouwen called The Way of the Heart. It's about the contemplative practices of silence and solitude. And in that, I read a quote from one of the ancient Christian masters, one of the Abbas. And when a student came to him and asked for advice, he told him, flee, be silent, and pray. For a lot of us, the contemplative practices, silence, solitude, prayer, they've rescued us. They've rescued our faith. They've given us hope and light when the old forms of being with Jesus, of understanding the spirit, of knowing God, started to fall apart. This is a natural progression for anyone. And sometimes the depths of our anxiety, sometimes the depths of our challenge and our struggle require something more than just more church. Sometimes they require us to go into silence and solitude, to flee, be silent, and pray. And so when I saw the title of Ed Szeski's book, Flee, Be Silent, and Pray, the exact words, I knew this is something we'd need to talk about. Ed is a freelance writer, the author of several books, including the one we'll talk about today, Flee, Be Silent, and Pray. He's also an editor. You can find out more in the show notes, the websites that I've given and links I've given. But without further ado, my conversation with Ed Szeski. So it's sort of a a rite of passage for this podcast uh, to ask my guests the same question. And so uh, you're joining a long line of people who've already had to respond to this and they've all survived. So hopefully, hopefully the same will be true for you too, Ed. Um, If you had to define the word wisdom, uh, where would you begin? I would start with the idea of, of depth, of deep roots, of rootedness, of uh, having a groundedness and that it's not just uh, knowledge that there is a depth of, of reflection and, and of, of awareness to it. And that can not just know something that has a deeper rooted meaning to it. And that's probably betraying some of my, you know, contemplative prayer, uh, my contemplative prayer tendencies, because that's a lot of, a lot of the language of, of contemplative prayer of becoming rooted and grounded and having a, a, a space to be more reflective. And, and so, that's that's where I would tend to look at wisdom from is that having that rooted uh, foundation to begin from, but also perhaps going to the the root of something to go beyond just the surface. Yeah. Do you do you find um, it seems like when we start talking about rooted and grounded, there's a there's implied in it a sense of age. There's a sense of things that have been around and stood the test of time testify better to that idea of rootedness and groundedness. Do you agree with that? How, or, well, let me ask it differently. How do you see that as being true or not true? Yeah, I, I would say that there is a wisdom in what has stood the test of time. 
and has been able to uh, evolve a bit, but also sustain some some measure of its of its form. Um, so that would be something about contemplative prayer, just that it it has that that the very simple practice to it that has been passed down. But there are different ways of practicing it that have kind of come up. Uh, but you know, there's something to be said for just maybe like even besides age, just like time, just to, to, to give, devote time to something to, to put those roots down, that there is a sense of you could be young, but you could devote a lot of time to something too. So not to rule out like young people from wisdom. I think that you could be very wise, uh, but you could set aside time for that reflection, for that depth. Yeah. The, the idea of contemplative practices and contemplative prayer seems to be opening up and appearing more often uh, in our culture. And in your book, you talk about, you address in the very beginning, and I think this is, and you can correct me if I'm wrong on this, I, I think this is a bit of an autobiography for you too. There is a church culture and a greater culture out of which this contemplative urge came for you and also why you feel like uh, contemplative practices are helpful in general for people. Is that, how do you see those two cultures impacting um, the, the, maybe the rise in attentiveness to contemplative practices? Right. Yeah. Well, I, I do, the way I, I explain it is that my own story provides kind of the frame for the book that it provides kind of the rationale of the, the question that every author fears, the why are you the person to write this book? And my answer to that is that I was the, the most hostile person toward contemplative spirituality to these practices because of negative experiences in the Catholic Church and, and growing up in that and having this very, you know, very, controlling, uh, uh, very controlling priesthood around me. Just the priests were very dismissive and and not open to questions and ideas. And, and so when I came to them with, with questions about the Bible, they were, they were kind of shutting me down. So that, that kind of created this whole approach of, of hostility toward Catholicism. And you don't have to look too far to find that in the evangelical slash fundamentalist movement. And so I, I had plenty of that from Christian radio, from different Christian pastors and speakers, writers. And what I found was that in, in college, uh, writers like Henry Nowen and Brennan Manning, they were like the, the safe Catholics. They were like, they were like, they were like, okay for evangelicals to read, you know? And so that they introduced me to some of this, this stuff. And, and I felt like I became comfortable with them, even though I was still kind of hostile toward the Catholic movement. Uh, but there's been a lot more dialogue between Catholics and evangelicals and, and you know, Richard, Richard Foster, Dallas Willard, helped pave the way, I think, for, for folks like me to start listening to more Catholic writers. And so as, you know, there's definitely like, like a consumerist shift in our culture now toward mindfulness and, and awareness and stillness and more, more study has been done in just the, the mindfulness field and science. But so it, it, for me, it was a lot of things kind of overlap or there was more emphasis on that in the culture for sure. But I, I've, kind of gradually became more aware of these writers. And as I threw myself into seminary and, and studying theology, and I felt like I took a lot of those things to like the, not the extreme, but to their, 
their end point of like, this is, I've done, I've done things the way that I was supposed to do them. And I still feel really far from God and alienated from God. And I don't feel like I can pray at all. And that it was kind of like that last resort of like, okay, well, let's turn to the safe Catholics and see what they have to say. And that's, and that's where this book came from. Yeah. So the idea of, um, of the two cultures, um, and there's a, there's a sense of, in the book, you talk about how, you know, some in uh, American religion, uh, evangelicals have uh, taken a lot of American tendencies to their logical extremes when you apply them to faith, and that there's a Catholic, uh, the Catholic influence may have some uh, practices or advice or direction to give that could be a corrective to that. But there's a quote in the book where you say, looking back now... I see that I made the mistake of trying to transform culture without first being transformed into someone worth imitating or able to offer something truly transformative. So stepping away from the culture discussion, how do you see contemplative practices as bringing about that kind of personal transformation that allows us to transform our cultures? Right. Yeah. The book has a lot of, a lot of quotes from Nowen and Manning and Cynthia Bourgeau about that. And it's just a real common theme that it's a, it's a slow, gradual shifting of, of, of surrender to God, of, of being transformed from within by God as God is present. But it's also, you know, an awareness, an awareness of others. And it's being able to listen more. It, there, there are lots of different subtle shifts that take place over time. And I, I think that evangelicals, especially in America, perhaps even we could say white, white evangelicals in particular have a, uh, have a, a culture of that, you know, the conversion experience, the, like, you know, the night today, the, the dark, to, you know, that, that, that turnaround moment of repentance. And, and so there's this language of, of quick, dramatic, sudden, you know, turning and shifting and all of a sudden everything's different, everything's new. And I think that in our spiritual formation, there's much more of a organic language of, of plants and being planted and nurtured and, and, and growing slowly over time. And, you know, there's growth that happens, but you, it's, it's, you can't really see it. If you sat there and watched it, you wouldn't really see it happen. And that's, that can be hard to accept when you have grown up in that conversion culture language. And so that, that can be hard. That can be discouraging for people to basically take it on faith that, that if I commit to silence before God, and, and this is all, you know, very biblical stuff. Like, it, you know, we, I, we say like it's Catholic, but it's, it's biblical ideas of waiting on the Lord of, of solitude. That's something that Jesus practiced all the time and took his disciples off to quiet places. And, you know, do we think that he just went off to pray and talked all night or did he maybe sit in silence before God for a lot? You know, like, can you talk for eight hours? I don't, I don't think I could. And so that's, you know, there's, there are these deep roots and that this is a tradition that goes back to the desert fathers and mothers who were just trying to figure out, uh, you know, they were living in this, uh, in a time where they, they, these were, a lot of them are affluent people who had status and power and wealth and they, they, they gave it away as they sought God. They, they realized how those things had become distractions. And so this is, the, the church's heritage, it's not just the Catholic heritage, it's just that the Catholics have done a better job of hanging on to these prayer traditions. 
So when it comes to contemplative practice, the, the feeling that contemplative practice, even the concept has, is, is a very individualistic feeling, um, that this is something that you practice personally. How does, how does the individual practice of contemplative spiritual practices, how does the individual pursuit of it how does that broaden and branch out to maybe a community? Because most of the most of the people who are influential in early contemplative practices were a part of some kind of either a monastic community or an intentional community. How does how does that work? And maybe more so, how does that how do contemplative practices operate on a corporate level right, today? Right. I mean, that's the that's the part that I would say is definitely in progress, a work in progress for me when I have been a part of retreats that I've led and created that space, uh, you, you feel that energy of the group. And as the, the leader of, of a contemplative moment or time, you know, you, you feel the energy of trying to like stop everyone and to, to create that stillness together. And I think that once people have that experience together, they're really grateful for it. And I, I, I joke with people that, we had a retreat, we had speakers, we had silence. And I said, the best part of this retreat is going to be the part where no one's talking. So there's nothing I can say that's going to, you know, that's going to take, that's going to be better than the time when I'm not talking. And I think that people found that to be true. Um, they didn't say it quite like that to me, but I, I have found that as our church has created space for that, people are hungry for it. They're hungry for, we have a, a today service where it's, uh, we sing some chants and we have silence and, and scripture reading and people, people show up for it. So I think that, you know, there's definitely a, a, a need to, to work on creating those spaces in our communities, but, you know, to, to be, to participate in that though, there's also the, the, the practice on your own time to, to commit to it and then to, come together with people and to, to, to share in that silence together. I think that it's really helpful to have had some silence yourself first. And there are some Sundays when I, even when I lead children's church uh, for my kids and some of the other kids, I, I go off in the sanctuary by myself and for some silence just to ground myself uh, a little bit more before I, I go into that corporate space. So I think you can work together and it, it does take, time and intentionality to create those spaces for a community though. So I, I encourage people to explore it because every time I, I bring it up, once you get people kind of over the hump of, isn't this too Catholic? Isn't this Eastern? Um, you know, you got lots of misconceptions about what contemplative prayer is, what the silence is. When you show them the roots and the, what it's based on, uh, I, I think people start to see how badly they need it. And once they have some of that silence, it, it could be a really restorative thing for them. So contemplative prayer then is is not a generic is not a specific thing it's more of a category it sounds like because there's the idea of contemplation which sounds like a process and then there's contemplative prayer which is a bit more specific how how difficult is it for you writing this book to kind of not to kind of to actually define what it is that you're talking about when you say contemplative prayer or contemplative practices or contemplation. Right. Right. Yeah. I, the way that I tried to describe it was that there's, 
you know, contemplative prayer is this gift of God, of, of God praying within us, of the spirit within us, of, of God's presence. And so it is a, it is a grace and it's something that we, we create the space for that. And so I, I talk about practices that help us begin to create that space. So I talk about the examine as a practice of self-reflection of just what, uh, what is on my mind? What am I grateful for? What am I, what am I bothered by? What do I need to pray about? Just to deal with some of the thoughts in my mind, the distractions that might keep me from being present for God. And then there's uh, Lectio Divina or, or reading scripture or using the prayers of others. And so that's just you know, ways of kind of clearing our minds, of preparing ourselves to be still and silent before God. And, and you know, there isn't like a formula or a trick to it, but what I found is that if I have these practices, I like to say that they kind of like, they loosen up the soil. They kind of dig up the hard, the hard spots of my soul. And then when I sit in silence, I'm much more receptive to whatever God wants to, to place in my life. And so there are ways we can prepare ourselves. And then there are ways that we can just be silent. And, and that's the, you know, the centering prayer. It's just a way of being silent before God. So contemplative prayer can, can happen. It's just a way of using a prayer word to, to still yourself, to still your mind before God. And how would you describe the vision for, you know, the end? What what should a person who engages in contemplative practices understand to be? Uh, I, I hate to use so many industrial words, but the yeah. outcomes. You know, what what yeah. is the picture that is painted by engaging in these practices what does it do what has it done to you and then what does it what does it do to a person who might engage in those practices intentionally i think the word might be stability that would be the the hope and i think that Mm. we get tossed around a lot by you know the, the, the writers of contemplative books like Brendan Manning, Thomas Merton, they spend a lot of time talking about our false self, our, our illusions about ourself. Uh, Richard Rohr has a great book called Immortal Diamond. And so we get really just thrown off, off base by the, the false self. And it, if, if it's a new concept to you, it's, it's hard to get your, your arms around. But it's, a, it's one worth exploring because I think that we imagine, I mean, and Henry Nowen has a lot about this too, but we, we imagine these illusions about ourselves of being, if I, if I do these things and people will like me, and if I don't do these things, they won't like me. If I, if I act or pray a certain way or say these words and God will like me, or if I fail in this way, God won't like me. And so we, we create these illusions about ourselves. And what Richard Roy writes about is that when you first begin to go into silence and contemplative prayer, that stuff just all comes out and you have to deal with all those illusions and all the, all the, uh, the mess, the clutter of our minds. And so that it's, it's not like you, you do contemplative prayer and you're instantly like at peace and at rest and you're, you're stable and rooted and everything's great. Uh, I think it's very chaotic and disruptive. And over time you, you begin to sort out, what are the illusions and what are the, the false self, false self issues to deal with? So as a writer, 
it's really easy to base your self-worth on your, your sales or your reviews or what people say. And it's very hard to get to a place where you can say, I have written the book that God has placed on my heart to write, and I've been faithful. And my identity and my worth is based solely on God's love for me. And that's it. And it just stops there. And that, that, can, be, that can be hard to you know, apply that in our lives in different areas and to see that. So I think we have to see those illusions and then we have to learn what the stability of, of living in God's love looks like and feels like. And then what happens is over time, we start to notice when we're off, off balance. And so if, if someone offends me or someone does something that I find disrespectful, and I'm doing the dishes, and I'm just, you know, really just thinking about that and really, really annoyed at that person. I, I know what that feels like now. That isn't, that isn't my normal level of internal chatter because I know what stability feels like. I say, okay, I'm off balance here. And so it's not a matter of beating myself up and saying, oh, I'm a terrible person. I have to repent. I mean, maybe I have to repent, but, you know, of certain things. But in that, in that situation, it was, okay, I am... I am feeling offended by this person's inconsiderateness and I need to get recentered in God. And, and now, now I have practices that I can turn to to find that stability again. So the contemplative practices, what I'm hearing you say, and I, I agree with this, is that they're both proactive and, and can be reactive in a way, how we, re, how we prepare for life and how we respond to life. Um, contemplation right. for me has always seemed like the best way to just name reality, uh, to, to interrogate what's mm. actually happening and just call it what it is. Um, and I, I think this comes down to... a the theological concept of original sin, too. I think the longer you spend in contemplative practices, you realize, you know, all sin, there's nothing unusual about the kind of struggles, but there's a very unoriginal um, kind of kind <laughs> of uh, struggle that we face. It's It's been going on for since humans have been humans, and we can be offended for our entire life, or we can be outraged, or we can find our value in things that aren't stable or don't last. And that that's one of the gifts I've found of contemplative practices, especially things like the examine, is being able to look at your life from the perspective of where was God near, where did God feel distant, and and not from a sense of, okay, now fix it, but in a sense of, okay, let's just call it what it is and embrace that. Right. As you wrote this book, did you find did you find it harder to engage in your contemplative practices while you were writing, or did you feel like uh, it actually was more of a support as you wrote? Yeah, I mean, I I feel like so. Here's one of the stories I tell. So this this book was originally self published, and as as a self published author you have to set a deadline and you just live and die by that deadline because if you don't, you're going to just keep pushing it back and pushing it back and pushing it back. 
So I set it for June, I think it was June 2017. And a, a good friend of mine asked me to speak at her writing retreat. And I felt like I couldn't, I couldn't say no to her, but it was like the week before the book was due to come out. And it was just a crazy sequence where my wife was finishing her semester and, oh, and then she had a research trip in England for three weeks. So I was home with the kids for three weeks. Uh, you know, I was trying to finish this book. I was preparing to speak at this retreat. And I remember driving out to that retreat and I was just, I was listening to a podcast. I think it was, uh, what should I read next? Which is one of my favorite, uh, book podcasts. And I felt like I just couldn't settle down and listen. And I was just disturbed and uh, Martin Laird calls it afflictive thoughts. Like I just couldn't uh, be at peace with myself. And so I, I drove, I think it was maybe a 10 hour drive and I just sat in silence for 10 hours. And I finally got to that retreat and I felt I was at peace. And it was like 10 hours of really, really uncomfortable, unpleasant soul work. But I had the practices and I knew like what to do and to recognize, and you know, and I knew that the the finishing the book and getting that release together was weighing heavily on me, and that I I felt like I didn't have the time to to really release the book well, and uh, instead of sitting there and just you know doing more strategizing in the car or thinking about it, I realized that I needed to to flip off that switch and and to be still and be present, and uh, I, I stopped in the mountains in Virginia and, and took a picture from that spot to remember like this is this is where my head got on straight after 10 hours <laughs> i love there's two things i love most about that response number one is i think the the reality of how a writer's life actually works that you know, not everybody has a cabin out in the mountains somewhere where we disappear to and you know, right. right that, you know, the Stephen Kings of the world can pull that off, but most people are like one writing with one hand and feeding a child with the other. Right. So I love that. And then the idea of, uh, you know, 10 hours of silence. One of the things that I, I notice in people when we, uh, I'll lead silent retreats and we'll do, we'll do a good 22 hours integrated with sleep in the middle. So that's an easier part, but a good 22 hours of silence and how at the beginning it's so intimidating. And at the beginning, it's incredibly uncomfortable. My favorite moment is we do meals in silence and there is nothing more awkward than watching people try to eat without talking for whatever reason. The one <laughs> moment when you shouldn't be talking with your mouth open uh, with food in it is the hardest moment to be silent. Uh, but that, uh, that awkwardness often turns into a very deep sense of calm. And mm -hmm. so I'm sure somebody's listening to this going 10 hours in the car in silence. I don't care how out of my head I am. I'm sorry. I don't, I don't think that would help. And yet you found that the practices were what guided you. Right. And I, th right. I think that's part of the paranoia is what would I do with this amount of silence? Am I just supposed to sit there? And, and the contemplative practices seem to provide a framework for that. Right. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And, and having either a prayer word or the, the Jesus prayer to turn to, that that provides just something for your mind to, to lock onto. And I, I think that, you know, 
the the greatest barrier for me was you know trying centering prayer the first time and getting just the very basic mechanics of it and i didn't have any kind of spiritual epiphany or experience of god and so my initial response was well that didn't work so let's try something else and i think that people a lot of times have these really sky high expectations of what contemplative prayer is going to do for them and it's much more of a gradual deepening uh awakening perhaps it's it doesn't provide that you know even that that moment when i was in the mountains and i felt at peace i I wouldn't describe it as some kind of mystical experience i just felt like my head was on straight you know that's (laughs) not to oversell it uh and i don't i don't think that i think that a lot of times folks who are anxious about their prayer lives and are, are anxious about finding god or meeting god in some way i think that that can hold them back it's that desire for some kind of epiphany moment instead of just entering the silence and just taking whatever happens as a gift and and remembering that whatever happens is you know god it's god is still present whether you are aware or not mm. oh that's good though the the contemplative life is one that just says whatever is is uh, if you believe that god is present then whatever happens and I, I think we like that when it's ambivalent times. We like that when it's good times. It's when the times are difficult or uncertain uh, that, that that is not as comfortable. And so there's a whole chapter in the book where you tackle mystery. And uh, we are not, we're still enlightenment people enough that the idea of mystery just creeps us out completely. Uh, it's Deciding as a writer, deciding what to include in a book is kind of a fun process uh, because you you weed through the things that you could say to the stuff that you should say. Uh, why did mystery make the cut as far as the chapters in the book? You know, one of the the dangers of a book like this is that I don't want to universalize my experience, and I I use my story as a frame as kind of a way to to introduce the ideas to people, but I, I know that there are different experiences of, you, you know, people use different words, either darkness or doubt or mystery or a dark night of the soul. Uh, people have had different you know, experiences of those, you know, of those, uh, of this feeling of, of feeling alienated from God or distant from God. And so I wanted to create a space for that because I don't think it's, it's right to talk about the experience of contemplation and of, of prayer without addressing that, that aspect of it. Cause it's, it's true. It's out there. It's, it's well-documented. And I, I use mother Teresa as one of the most popular examples, but as I was working on this chapter, I, I had a, a Facebook group of folks who were all uh, contemplative writers and you know, people were sharing some of their experiences of it. And, you know, some described it as a, a, a kind of almost a, de- a depression of uh, spiritual depression. It wasn't a clinical depression, but a, like a spiritual depression of, of feeling kind of just sad and distant from God. So uh, there, there are different experiences that people have had as, as they are letting go of their own desires, their own wants. And I, I think that that's, that's just one of the things that people go through as they're learning this way of praying that some of their attachments can be difficult to let go of. And there can be a time of just of, of, of kind of like a spiritual darkness 
that you go through and, you know, everyone I've talked to kind of came out on the other side of it and felt like it was beneficial, but the, the experience of it itself was not comfortable. And so I think that, you know, God has different ways of dealing with our, our attachments, our illusions, our, our things that we need to surrender. And so that, that kind of mystery and darkness can be one aspect of it. So I felt like I, I didn't, I didn't, I didn't want to leave that out. I, as much as that can be a difficult thing for people to read, I felt like people need to know that it's, that's a possibility. Yeah. Yeah. So the ability to name, you know, contemplative practices help us name reality and then the reality that some of our some of the things we think are true actually may not be true, right? And when we let go of those, it's a it's a it's you it's like losing all your default settings. Right. My wife just switched from Internet Explorer to Chrome. <laughs> thankfully, I'd been I'd been praying for her for a long time, and glad to see that she converted. Uh, but she said the hardest part was all of her all of her presets, all of her tabs, all of her saved favorites were gone. And I think there's a there's an image there that's true yeah. when you start to let go of your attachments. It's great and it's freeing, but how does this new person respond to the world? And I think that can cause a significant amount of of darkness. Yeah. You uh, you mentioned mm-hmm. Dallas Willard earlier, and one of my favorite thoughts that he brings up is people. He says that people like to talk a lot about the cost of discipleship, but uh, what about the cost of non-discipleship? Mm-hmm. And I wonder if we can play with Dallas's language a little bit. What do you sense is the cost of a non-contemplative life with Christ? Is what what do we lose by not incorporating some of these practices? Yeah, I mean, all throughout Scripture, there's such an emphasis on waiting on the Lord, on you know, speak, Lord, your servants listening, of, of coming to God with our hands open in prayer. And I think we just, we lose such a, a deep, rich aspect of our faith. If we don't have that silence and stillness before God, how will we hear God speak? And I think that, especially my own background in the evangelical tradition, I don't, I don't like I don't want people to think that I'm writing out of anger or bitterness toward my evangelical background or former leaders. I mean, they, they passed along what was passed on to them. And somewhere in that lineage, we lost our handle on these, these spiritual practices that I, I believe are not just part of our heritage as Christians, but also as just part of the, the faith described in the Bible. And so that, that to me is, uh, it's, it's, it's our, it's just part of our faith. And so we're missing such a huge experience of being uh, able to wait on God, to listen to God. And just in today's world, with so many distractions, so many things going on, um, Willard you know, talks about ruthlessly eliminating hurry. That's like the one spiritual discipline. And that's, that is our, our, our sin, our, our way of functioning, it's our default setting is hurry. It's being busy of, of being really full. And uh, actually one spiritual director once said to me, don't, don't say you're busy, say you're full, which I felt like that was a helpful way to 
rethink my schedule of my time. And there's a little bit more hope there because uh, if you're full, you just need to get rid of some stuff. And that, but that's kind of our badge of honor today. And so if we don't develop that discipline of silence, of waiting, of, of creating that space, I think that's just the, that idea of, of creating a space for some kind of spiritual thing to happen and not having an agenda or a plan or a measure or a result in mind, but just create that space for God and see what happens. I think that goes against so much of our, our culture and not just our culture, but our kind of our cultural religion, kind of if, if evangelicalism has become kind of the folk religion of America in some, in some areas, uh, you know, the Americanized version of, of Christianity would, would want to keep busy. And so this, this is such a, a vital part of our faith and it's especially vital for us at this, at this time in this moment. And I, I can't think of any uh, Christian in my life who, who probably couldn't use more capacity to listen to God and also to listen to other people. Like it's, it's a, it's a, it's a valuable gift at this time when we have so many ways to broadcast and shout and to say things, you know, we have this heritage of listening and waiting on God and listening and being attentive and aware of our, our neighbors who we're supposed to love. So, uh, we have all this heritage to, to draw from. I love that idea that listening, the, the way we love people is by listening to them first and foremost and hearing the ways in which they need to be loved. Uh, you're working on a new project that it sounds like th- comes from this as well as the idea that our technology forms us, uh, the technology that forms us and in the, in the, in our spiritual formation process where do you see the intersection between um, what you're saying now about the need for contemplative practices and our current habits and formation uh, alongside of our technology that we use? I don't feel like I asked that question really well at all. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, let me let me ask it differently. Uh, where what's the impact that you see between? Uh, the way our technology is in affecting us and how how these contemplative practices can address that. Yeah. I mean, you know, I think where I started out with this new project, it's tentatively called Always Present, playing on the idea of our technology is always present, God's always present. And so that kind of conflicting, uh, those conflicting forces in our lives and I started out with thinking about just how technology shapes and forms us from the idea of our image of the image we project to other people, kind of the false self and how contemplative prayer might address that. And I had been thinking about the way that technology, you know, demands efficiency and, and creates this, creates that sense of hurry. And Thomas Merton's book, uh, conjectures of a guilty bystander, I, 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 the way I sell to people is I say, it's, it's basically cheap therapy. I felt like it just really, you know, just diagnosed a lot of the issues of our times and the things that have been afflicting my own thinking. And I felt like he was already thinking about, um, he was thinking about misinformation about how, you know, technology is being used to spread fake news essentially. So just the way that, that fake information is being spread on social media. Like he was, he was thinking about that, about how language is being devalued. And, and he was thinking about 
um, contemplative prayer and technology. And he, he, uh, in his, his journals too, he writes about these novices coming who have grown up watching television and they treat contemplative prayer like a remote control. They're trying to like find the button to like turn on prayer. And so he was, he was way ahead of his time thinking about the issues of technology and how it's impacting our spirituality, our ability to, to just know truth, to, to be aware of each other. And as I, as I've dug more into this topic, I just, I feel like I've, I've hit this deep well that I don't know how to like cram it all into a book because uh, there is this, there's this whole other aspect of our technology, our devices where, you know, they are designed to be addictive. Uh, The phones are designed uh, that you want to like hold them and carry them around the apps we use um, there's some great stuff out there from the humane technology movement, um, Tristan Harris, um, former Facebook folks, about the way notifications pop up, their color, the way our, our screens do infinite scrolling. Like they're all designed to suck us in, draw us in. So yes, there's the issue of the false self on Instagram, but there's so many other aspects of how it's designed that exploits our psychology and keeps us coming back. And it's designed to shape us into people who need that, who need that affirmation and who need that. And so, you know, how does contemplative practice, how do these contemplative practices give us some stability and can they give us the stability of the, of the true self and God? And can we recognize when we are destabilized by technology, by first grounding ourselves in contemplative practices? So that's, that's the angle of the book. And it's, uh, it's just, it's just, I I feel that it's urgent because a lot of Christians beat themselves up over their social media usage or binging on it. And they don't realize that there's like a thousand YouTube engineers trying to give you that perfect video. Like you're up against a thousand engineers. So the least that you can do is think about, you know, how can I counteract that? You know, that, you know, it's not just that you're, you know, you're a simple or slothful person. It's that you're being manipulated by technology. And so this, this project has, has grown bigger than I expected it to grow. But the more that I, I dig into it, the more I see the urgency of it. And I see just how important it is to, to begin our lives, to begin our days with that grounding in contemplative practices and silence before God, before going into the, the noise and the, the flashing lights of life. Yeah. So with your current book, um, Flee, Be Silent, and Pray, what's the gift you hope that this book gives to people who read it? I, you know, I hope that it's for the people who, like me, have felt like they just don't know how to pray and they don't know where to begin. And who perhaps even feel like they could never pray enough. And so the, the subtitle is Ancient Prayers for Anxious Christians. And I think that there's just a lot of Christians who feel like they can never pray enough or they have to do these, they have to get up earlier or, or they have to do these dramatic changes and they can't do these dramatic changes. So they feel bad about themselves and they carry all this guilt and shame and they don't know where to begin. And so giving people some really simple spiritual practices that have stood the test of time, 
that I feel like I've, I've benefited from by sticking with them over the years. And I know that other people have as well. And so there's, there's real stability that people can enjoy in their, their spirituality and their prayer lives. And, and just each chapter gives people like a, here's a next step. Here's something to try out or do. And to give people that hope that they can find a space for prayer and not beat themselves up over not praying enough because God is present. And once you realize that it's not about conjuring God or calling down God from heaven, it's that God's present with you. So you can learn just to be still and silent before God right now. Like people could begin prayer right now and you don't have to worry about doing it right or wrong. You just have to just be still before God and God's present. And it's so deceptively simple that it's easy to miss. And so I hope that folks can get that simplicity and just have like some good, good starting points for like a simple prayer practice. Yeah. Man, that's good. I love the book. I love what it's putting into the world. I, the contemplative practices and coming back to those, even as I was reading through it, it was for me, like I, it's sometimes you just need somebody else to remind you of how good these things are. Right. And, uh, and it's why we go to writers conferences. It's why we, we, it's kind of why, well, I'm, I'm trying to find a good reason why I'm still on Twitter, but I, I think it's one of the reasons I'm still on Twitter is every once in a while you read something like, yes, I forgot about that. That's true. I need to come back to that again. And yeah. so I appreciate you writing a book that does that well. Yeah. Thank you. Ed Zizeski is a freelance writer, editor, and he's the author of the book, Flee, Be Silent, and Pray, Ancient Prayers for Anxious Christians. Currently, it's on a heavy discount for the ebook version, so go and find that through the links that I've provided in the show notes. You can find Ed his website there as well. Just want to remind you coming up in April, my next book, As I Recall, Discovering the Place of Memories in Our Spiritual Life, comes out on April 9th from InterVarsity Press. Would love it if you would go pre-order. That would be awesome. If you enjoyed the conversation today, if you're streaming, thank you. If you're listening on iTunes or another platform, thank you for doing that. Uh, if you wouldn't mind giving a rating or a review, that would be awesome. And until next time we talk, friends, be well, live wisely. Peace. <laughs>